This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're talking about Carl Jung and Donald Winnicott's review of Carl Jung's work, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Helen, of course, is the one who picked this topic, and she will kick us off. So I, I, ha- I have a lot to say about this. This is a topic that I enjoy talking about. I enjoy getting on my soapbox about. Hopefully I'll, I will remain polite and stuff like that. But um, I, it's, an, it's an interesting topic, this sort of, this question of Carl Jung. We were going to, a few people on Patreon suggested we looked at um, a dangerous method, but I think that we all kind of felt that maybe it would be fairer to Jung to actually read some Jung. And also um, that, that, that film um, in terms of the topic of Jung, I don't think is like the best jumping off point for various reasons, including it's, it's quite strange, but maybe it would be a good film to discuss through another frame, like the question of the filmmaking itself. But um, yes, yeah, so Jung is an interesting one. Um, certainly in America, he has a lot of popularity. Um, he's called a psychoanalyst, which perhaps we can kind of question. We did also um, read, some of us read maybe this uh, first essay in, first section of the two essays on analytic psychology with psychoanalysis, which I I chose. I mean, it, it also is, it's a good representation of psychoanalysis itself. So he does um, map out certainly like very early, very basic themes in psychoanalysis quite well. And I think that his problem is not psychoanalysis, his understanding of psychoanalysis maybe um, in terms of a practice or um, in terms of its general general kind of um, set of ideas, but really his contribution to psychoanalysis is the issue. And I think the contribution is something that we can't call psychoanalysis, but rather it's depth psychology, which is different. And um, in this section of Memories, Dreams and Reflections, the first bit where he talks, it's sort of an autobiography. It's also interesting questions about the question of autobiography. Um, there's sort of this like truth in, psychoan- uh, in, in, in autobiography, which I think is a, is a question in psychoanalysis. People would, would generally be like, well, no, there's not a truth in autobiography. There's a truth in the um, autobiography, not in the intention of the author, but there's a revelation in the statement. Um, so Winnicott says this is a truly self-revealing statement in his um, analysis of memory streams and reflections. Um, but you can kind of maybe get a flavor. This is young in his later life, where, as Winnicott says, he has maybe settled into his quote unquote true self. I'm in the sort of British psychoanalytic perspective. There's this question sometimes of true self and false self, which maybe I don't necessarily buy into, but um it's an interesting idea, but the idea that, that Jung has sort of abandoned his um, more neurotic um, societal presentation in favor of leaning into his sort of psychotic fantasy. And um, Winnicott kind of explicates maybe why he um, has potentially uh, a psychotic um, subjective structure. And there's nothing wrong with being psychotic at all. In fact, Winnicott says, you know, that often the most creative people um, have this kind of um, uh, subjective structure, which um, from a Freudian, so a true psychoanalytic perspective is very much explicated through a materialism of the unconscious. It's completely materialist. There's, it's not like any woo-woo, any sort of like strangeness. This is purely rational, philosophical and logical, a completely logical explication of how we get subjectivity and how it is undercut by the unconscious and how the unconscious, the undercut, forms the uh, subjectivity as well. And in Jung, there is less of a materialism, more of a flight towards, um, let's say, fantasy or ideology, where there is a sort of filling in the gaps of contradiction in um, a drive towards cosmic balance. So I would argue that that Freud really is um, in the lineage of Paul, Hegel, Marx, and then, you know, following we have people like Lacan and stuff. And these people really give us a purchase on material reality dialectically um, so that we can understand how subjectivity works, so that we can understand ideology, so that we can understand really maybe create better societies ultimately through this knowledge. Um, and there is a sort of this explication of how 
the unconscious or how contradiction um, is part of this universe in which we are. Whereas um, the Jungian turn and potentially why Freud had to ban him from psychoanalysis was this um, the, the, doing that which psychoanalysis is essentially quote unquote designed, even though it's not really designed per se, it's it's an emergent of what's really there, you know. Um, although one could argue it's a technology as well, you know, you have the practice technology and the theory, the philosophy, um, to not do, which is to turn to magical thinking, religious thinking, ideology. Um, I mean, potentially that's that's what I can say for now. Um, and we can, I've got loads more to say later on. Um, and there's loads of questions in terms of, I mean, I was going to get us to read a section on the collective unconscious, because really that's where you see the antagonism between Freud's, Freud's notion of the unconscious and the collective unconscious. The other um, difference is in this sort of um, depth or underneathness of, um, of the unconscious or the subconscious, so-called. So, um, and Winnicott sort of um, explains this a little bit in his review, and you can read, it really comes out in, in the autobiography, but in, in Freud, there is no depth. The unconscious is something that cuts across reality. There's no um, cosmic balance. So when I say cosmic balance, I'm talking about utopian thinking. So there's no, for instance, subconscious that's wiser than we are, that has a truth that we just have to listen to. We have to just relax and get in contact with. There's no true self. There's no return or there's no way of getting back to utopia. But there is antagonism within reality and that antagonism generates the whole thing. So I won't go into the whole um, logic of this. I think I've sort of touched on it so many times, but that is the unconscious that generates subjectivity itself. And it's not, it's not a depth. It's not a return to, it doesn't hold a promise. It's just a literal cut across reality. Um, I'll leave it there and then we can talk about more stuff later on. All right, Nina, it's your turn. Uh Right. Well, I all of the Jung I've read, I, I, I've quite enjoyed, I must admit. <laughs> and uh, I probably have a, a slightly uh, more um, open-minded approach in some ways, and possibly so open-minded that my, my brains have fallen out on this matter. Um, I, I did read the autobiography, except I only got halfway through because I was living with this lovely young Polish woman at the time, and uh, she was having some difficulties and I thought she would enjoy it. And indeed she did. So I gave her my copy. So I never finished reading <laughs> Jung's autobiography. Uh, I have read some other Jung and I, I actually, I quite like the, I, the archetype stuff. I quite like all the stuff around Gnosticism and alchemy. And uh, I, I'm not against, if you like, uh, even the idea of the collective unconscious, which, which as you say, Helen is, is rather uh, anathema to, uh, to, anyone working more in uh, sort of Freudian or Lacanian uh, tradition. And I, I remember being at a conference once in which uh, I was talking about uh, the collective because my PhD was on uh, ideas of the group and the collective, not in a psychoanalytic sense, but in a political sense. And I said something and, and someone rather sniffily said, oh, that sounds like Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like it was very obvious that this is a very inappropriate thing to defend. But um, ideas of synchronicity, I find quite appealing. I, I do think that that there is there are deep patterns in the way in which uh, people think, um, which reveal something of a uh, group dimension. Um, whether those are the same kinds of archetypes as 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 Jung would say, and I, I think sometimes they are. Um, obviously, as you know, I'm I'm reading and teaching uh, a course on Gnosticism, and there's an interesting. Uh, aspect of, of, for example, uh, well, in particular, I should say, um, Culiano, who's a great Romanian thinker, his understanding of Gnosticism as a, a pattern of dualistic thinking, which occurs repeatedly in different places, right? So that you don't need to trace, if you like, a history of Gnosticism from one place to another. It's simply that this is a kind of structural mode of thinking that occurs and emerges at particular points for particular reasons, which may or may not be kind of material or political or economic or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very... Uh, into kind of thinking 
in that sort of structural way. And I know structural wouldn't exactly be the way that Jung would be characterised. And, and I think there's obviously something kind of mystical and slightly esoteric about Jung. He's obviously been repopularised by Jordan Peterson in a in a sort of fusion of sort of Christian and Jungianism. And, and in a way, um, before that, you had uh, people like Robert Bly, the poet who um, died recently. He was kind of mythopoetic men's rights activist, Avant Lalette, who was trying to also tap into ideas of archetypes. And I think every generation has sort of Jungian thinkers. Like it's always a kind of, um, I don't know, maybe alluring uh, position. And, and the Jung I, I was reading in the summer, um, what little I, I managed to get through, one, one thing I did kind of um, appreciate was, not because it was difficult, just because I was doing other things, let me let me say, um, <laughs> was was actually the way in which it, it seemed to me to allow, and this is why also probably someone like Peterson is also possible, it presented the possibility, I think, of mythicizing one's own life in a way, or finding mythical value in everyday experience that sort of belongs to you, but also not to you. So that you're kind of a, part a participant in a kind of cosmic game or story or set of meanings, um, which is actually like quite a beautiful thought. And if you are sort of feeling depressed and alienated and atomized, as, as we all are or supposed to be, that actually the idea that you can kind of restore meaning through a series of encounters you know, that you can see other people through also this lens of archetypes as well as as individuals and, and so on is actually quite nice <laughs> and, and appealing in a certain way. And I could see why why Jung wants to, if you like, almost give um, a kind of system of myth, you know, to systematize myth in a certain kind of way so that it, it, it sort of piggybacks off the claims that are being made by psychoanalysis in a certain sense, but gives it this kind of almost literary poetic um, quality. Um, and so in relation to the pieces that we were looking at, yeah, I, I liked Winnicott's. It was kind of respectful, but also kind of critical of the, the piece on the, the autobiography and, and you know, to, to describe kind of Jung's childhood psychosis. Um, and I, I suppose maybe that, you know, there's something about that psychotic structure, which again, I just find very appealing. The idea, I suppose, as far as I understand it, of a you know, almost like the desire for the real, you know, as this kind of fundamental <laughs> sort of uh, orientation uh, in language, but also to the world, you know, the, 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 the I suppose the fantasy of unmediated experience. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed looking at the Red Book. I, I once bought a copy of the Red Book for a friend. And, um, you know, again, there's something kind of always very tantalizing about the esoteric you know that it that it may be and 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 i think that one of the things about the esoteric in general is that it always seems to hint at something or promise something that is also at the same time kind of hidden so it's it always has this sort of seductive structure um if you like that you may or may not get behind any may or may not bear any relation to any experience you might have but it sort of does potentially and i think this is what jung kind of points to and uh, you know so so i'm not i'm not bothered if jung is kind of disliked by the academy or isn't perceived as rigorous or you know lie to freud <laughs> or whatever um i i think there probably is at, at the very least we could say it's not unimportant that jung remains uh popular i would say particularly outside the academy and that there that people are always trying to reinvent jung for better or for better or worse all right that means it's my turn. So when she was giving us the readings for this week's episode, Helen said that Carl Jung has two sides. For Winnicott, this is quite literally true. He argues that Jung suffered from a split personality and that much of Jung's later work aimed at rectifying this split, at finding a true self. Winnicott describes this as a blind alley. He says that, quote, generally, the problems of life are not about the search for the self, but about the full and satisfying use of a self that is well-grounded. For Winnicott, Jung is stuck in a problem that most people resolve in infancy, the problem of developing an adequate sense of self. Winnicott's critique of Jung reminds me of my critiques of Sartre's existentialism. Sartre prioritized authenticity over substantive values and real problems, he didn't care very much what people did, as long as they did whatever they were doing authentically. His ethics amounted to little more than an assertion of the value of nonconformity. 
This subversion had some value in an otherwise stultifying post-work context, but SART offered us very little guidance when it came to making real-life decisions. Be yourself just doesn't get you very far. The Buddhists rightly emphasized that if you're trying to find yourself, you've misunderstood the problem. You're already there. There's nothing missing, nothing more to find. It's just a question of what's worth doing and how to structure life so that the things that are worth doing can be done. But perhaps there are two youngs in two senses. In the selection we read from Young himself, Young points out that a traumatic experience is not enough to give somebody mental health problems. The same two people can have the same experience and come out of it very differently. How do we explain that? There must have been some difference between the two people before they had the experience. In addition to the event, there must be some further reason the person reacts pathologically to the event. Young argues that this pathological context is often an erotic conflict. He gives us an example. Young once had a female patient who was a tomboy. The tomboy didn't want femininity and tried to suppress feminine inclinations, including sexual and romantic feelings. But she still had those feelings, even though she tried to ignore them. Eventually, she got into a romantic situation where those feelings surfaced, but her habit of denying them got in the way. When she really genuinely loved a man, she could not admit it. And when she did not love a man, she acted as if she did. She consciously pursued a man she didn't love while subconsciously pursuing the man she did love. Such a person will think they're telling the truth about their feelings when they are not even aware of what they really feel. This kind of problem doesn't sound that unusual. Lots of people seem to get into situations where they don't understand their own feelings and motivations. Their conscious mind cannot report their feelings accurately. They can speak honestly and still deceive, and that makes them impossible to trust. Such people cannot even trust themselves. Put them in a situation that exposes some element of their psychology that they have concealed from themselves, and they will surprise even themselves with their behavior. I'm reminded of Montesquieu's Persian letters. In that text, Montesquieu emphasizes the difficulty of gaining enough self-awareness to embark upon the quest for virtue in the first instance. To pursue virtue, you have to be able to see the ways in which you fall short, and that requires an ability to see yourself. In the Persian letters, Montesquieu's Persians can easily pick apart Europeans and European culture, but when confronted with their own affairs, they are just as clueless as the Europeans they mock. Montesquieu doesn't position the pursuit of self-awareness as the primary object of life. Like Winnicott, he positions it as a mere prerequisite to larger life questions. But like Jung, he emphasizes that in many cases, people failed to get even this far. For Montesquieu, the response was to design a political and social system that did not require virtue and therefore did not require self-awareness. His was a system meant to withstand the spiritually stunted. Jung's political commentary was never very substantial. Much of what he says about the state and religion is outclassed by more influential political thinkers like Nietzsche, Weber, and Schmidt. Young certainly doesn't make it onto political theory reading lists. Today, he is often taken up by self-improvement gurus, the people who tell you to hustle, to get good, and become the stoic sage. Can we salvage anything from that? Maybe. I do think Young's cognitive archetypes can be useful in helping people get started. A lot of people use Jungian concepts to give themselves a language for discussing aspects of their lives and the lives of the people around them that were previously obscure. These Jungian schemas vary in sophistication. There's the very simple Myers-Briggs framework, the Soviet socionics models, many more new versions of Jungianism on YouTube. None of these models have managed to impress scientists, but I do think young people can constructively engage with them. If nothing else, they might get kids to start the process of trying to think about how they might fit into the world around them. They might make kids more aware that different people have different strengths and weaknesses. Is that too generous? I'll let Helen decide. Well, it's interesting to pick up on that last bit. I mean, I did go through a young phase quite severely. And I think I said in another podcast, I like to really attack things. And uh, only as you know, Lacan says, only a Christian can be an atheist. You know, you really, when you go to something, you see the core of it, you can come out the other side. And so I think the use for young people is to engage with it seriously and see its limitations and see that to to potentially um buy into the Myers Briggs for instance is to is to live in bad if we talk about authenticity you know to, to live in bad faith obviously that's also you know searching questions and interesting one and I like that um parallel. It's interesting because um 
like as I said, that early early text is is good. You know, he talks about um, I think really well how you can't really medicalize this subjectivity. Subjectivity is more of a philosophical question, um, which is why psychoanal- psychoanalysis and, and aspects of philosophy are, are kind of you know f- f- you could argue that philosoph- uh, psychoanalysis is a form of philosophy as well as a as well as a practice. Um, so I think that that's really good. And there is there is a question of so. Um, in a maybe more Freudian Lacanian sense, psych- psychotics often um, don't discover that they're psychotic until later in life. You know, you, you know, you're not completely dissolved of an ego. Um, you develop an ego in in your early years, and things like the know of the father, the name of the father, which these symbolic um, um, injunctions doesn't have to be a man that embodies the name of the father and the know of the father. But um, in Winnicott's piece, he talks about how um, Jung's mother was very depressed and so his father took on this maternal role. So he was in this sort of very maternal space with no kind of um, limitation really to, to engender this solid creation of, 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 a, of an ego. But often people can, can go through life um, to a certain extent with, with whatever they have until a point where um, they're confronted by contradiction. So often the, the crutch can be thinking in very um, solidly, overly rational ways or something, and then they're confronted with the limit of that. And then that's really traumatic. And it can, various things can engender a psychotic break. So is this argument that, that Jung had a psychotic break. And then in that psychotic break, he, he, he ended in a, in a pursuit for the self, um, for this wholeness that he felt that he needed to get. The thing is, I mean, I also did some Jungian kind of, I don't know, would you call it therapy or whatever? And I I would say that it is quite dangerous for some people. This is why I get quite like, <laughs> you know, um, because for some people, so, you know, neurotic people, people who maybe fall into the neurotic bracket of subjectivity, which is the majority of people. I mean, there's a question of each, um, that the material reality has an influence of ever given epoch, it has an influence on the sort of form of subjective structures that, that, people have but you know can be who, who are very um solid in their sense of self but maybe um well, i mean hysteric or or an obsessive they have slightly different different um different issues but but the neurotic to neuroticize is really to have a distance to your own self-certainty to be able to question your own um sort of ideological solidity so often for, for neurotic people it can be very in- tempting to see somebody who speaks with a sort of religious certainty like Jung, even though it's a certainty of doubt, as in, let's say people like Freud would have um, a doubt of certainty, if that makes sense, or a system that's, that's, that's about questioning and to, to neuroticize us to question. So, so a healthy psychotic might be somebody who knows they have sort of like flights of fantasy, who, who, have visions or hallucinations or out of body experiences, but they they know that that's a symptom. They're able to have a distance to it. It's when it's when it's this sort of absolute certainty that you know, speaking to angels or whatever that that you and 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 as I say, like this can have there are all sorts of different forms of psychosis, all sorts of different forms of neurosis and stuff. And I guess this is another reason why I'm, I kind of um, don't enjoy the archetypes and stuff because you go into psychoanalysis not having a fucking clue what anything means. And the analyst doesn't either. Like your symptom can take on, your subject subjectivity is language. So any experience or any event of language can cause any symptom. And just because it looks like X, just because, you know, you're hearing things, it can, it can be because of anything. And that's why psychoanalysis takes such a long time. So the, the archetype, it's almost like you have an infinite ocean of questions and then you're going with a little sieve and you're putting it in the water to catch it. Like it's it like the archetypes, even though it is sort of like poetic and, and metaphorical sometimes, although I think Jung himself, you know, you, you have this veil of metaphor, but it's actually sort of a really truly believed thing is not enough. It doesn't go, met- it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go esoterically far enough, if that makes sense. Um, it's too scientific. It's too limited. Um, but yes, yeah, so, 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 you know, the, you have the cult leader where people, people who maybe feel a bit lost and maybe you're neurotic and you're constantly questioning yourself. You see somebody who has absolute certainty 
and it's very pe- appealing. And sometimes it can be useful for very repressed people, you know, to start to think more metaphorically, to think more, more poetically, to be less sure, you know, to, to be more kind of open to the question. So instead of trying to reactively shut down this sense of questioning that often comes with the neurotic, to like lean into that and to realize that that's okay. But sometimes for, for people of other forms of subjectivity, engaging with something like Jung can end up being sort of a folie à deux, you know, when you, you believe too much in what he is believing. And um, so, so Peter did a, um, there was this thing years ago where Jordan Peterson was going off on about how no Marxists would ever debate him. And so this group of people set up this thing, um, this, you know, session to debate him. And it was set up by students and he wanted like 70 grand. So he pulled out. So then they just did this um, intervention in lieu of, in lieu of a debate. So all these different people gave their reflections. And so Pete and I listened to like everything you ever wrote on audiobook for like weeks, which as it was quite enjoyable. And having been very, had this previous experience of like, I don't trust this, you know, he does write well and what have you, but I think all of the good stuff in Jung exists already in psychoanalysis and it's better because it goes further than Jung does in a sense, if that makes sense. And the utopian thinking and stuff, as we've always said, like it can, it's very easily picked up by self-help, capitalism, et cetera. Mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think sort of both can be true. I mean, I, I also take Benjamin's point about like this may be lots of people's way into thinking as well because of the popular aspect and all of the people being a bit Jungian on YouTube or whatever. You know, like it yeah. it maybe it points to the beginning of a an, a quest for meaning. You know, and I mean quest in a strict sense. You know, like that that idea of trying to make sense of you know signs and symbols and also your own life and you know, you know, even processes of differentiation, like what does it mean to say that that some people are like this and some people are like that? And, you know, basic or even basic kind of psychological um, behaviors that everybody engages in, like projection or repression or, you know, I don't know, there's something and, and even, you know, OK, you can read Freud's three essays on sexuality and have this conception of like a kind of constitutive bisexuality, not in the sense of desiring both men and women, but having this relation to passivity and activity, which we could code as masculine and feminine um, in particular social situations. And, you know, and then Jung, you have anima and animus and, you know, the idea of a kind of shadow side. And it it's sort of it's it's like the. I don't know, the poetic, surreal painting version of psychoanalysis. Like, and I think that is its appeal, right? And and, and some of it's it's you know extraordinary, like the depth he goes into when he's looking at the kind of history of alchemy and Mithras and you know, all of these kind of you know sort of hermetic thoughts. And so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I I was thinking when you were talking about these categories of psychotic neurotic i suppose it would be in the lacanian framework you would you're either a kind of psychotic and neurotic or a pervert right <laughs> and the it, correct yeah Basically. there's an autistic category as well oh yeah yeah okay but, but but these sort of roughly um relate to the way in which we as subjects entered into language in in yeah. some sense right so so obviously i don't relate to the neurotic at all <laughs> like i'm definitely psychotic and having had very psychotic experiences after not sleeping for 17 weeks you know and actually hallucinating and hearing like the polysemia of every single word that everyone was speaking and these very interesting very frightening experiences actually but very interesting at the same time and i i you know i i retained insight despite being clearly uh, away with the fairies and I understood what that phrase meant as well <laughs> um, but it was it was absolutely fascinating and I, I think as a as an encounter with one's own mind that's actually very extreme um, you know and this was like uh, initially um, after Alfie was seriously hurt and was nearly killed and then you know he was put on trial and you know and I my whole life had been completely uprooted I didn't have anywhere to live I was like it was a, you know it was just a kind of situation that was absolutely terrible like it you know too much happened too quickly and I couldn't hack it basically and I and I stopped being able to sleep I wasn't eating and then eventually I ended up in this sort of very twilight state and um but in retrospect it I it did do something kind of 
very, very interesting to because it was also there's lots of paranoia. Everything w- was meaningful. You know, I was trying to put everything together. I was kind of exhausted, but also kind of constantly trying to like make sense of things in this kind of very painful way. And it did afterwards, I think, have one of the effects was this um sort of being like weirdly open-minded, right? So you're talking about the neurotic kind of, you know, the the, the danger, let's say, of like the cult leader or the or I don't know, the young uncertainty and you know, that there's something kind of attractive about that, but also dangerous. And I think the maybe the psychotic relation to knowledge when it's not paranoid is actually just accepting everything is true <laughs> in a strange way. Like it kind of, it's not that like like for example it's not like I want to believe in a particular person or anything like that but it's more like I'm okay with sort of everything being true at once even when even when it's completely contradictory but that, you know, that, I don't I don't yeah that's truth as such I mean that's the truth that you mm. want it's like um a neurotic to get to as well and I think the thing is it's like again it's not um it's not the like any category or bucket of subjectivity is bad in fact they're almost each yeah your superpower but it's almost a reaction against it that's the issue. So for instance, to to um the fear of falling apart leading you to cling really tightly to whatever, or you know, the, the quest for wholeness. And this is what I think I said a few weeks ago about like um you're in a way that that the we have we have like the the system, the uh, political economy and the shit system, whatever, of any epoch. And then the thing that really and the ideology of promise, which sort of like justifies it, and it's really the neuroticism as in the um desire for wholeness feeling lack and um, not being able to accept lack that really is the fuel and i think i said that like sometimes it's funny because some some psychotic people i know you think like oh you know they're like hippies or you know they're like so open but some psychotics precisely because they potentially feel the experience of lack even further without a solid ego boundary can even be more much more capitalist than neurotics sometimes and i think the thing is it's like it really just depends. And so having an open, an ability to maybe have gone through it and been okay can, can be very positive, maybe. Well, the jury's out, but yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Benjamin. <laughs> I, I have a thought. So, you know, Young in this piece says that lots of people can go through the same traumatic experience, but some people will have something going on in the background, which will cause that to be a much bigger problem than others. I wonder. You know, I think that taking things in a dogmatic direction and treating them as the whole truth and as a fully satisfying schema where you don't have to do anything else, you've got it, you have it, it's yours. That's a problem regardless of what perspective you might do it from. And there are philosophers and theorists that I really like that some people take in a very dogmatic direction. And when they do that, they make those philosophers useless by by turning them into a dogma. There are people who do that with Marx. There are people who do that with Plato. Lots of different people that I like. So I guess what I kind of want to ask is, to what degree do you think this dogmatism is inherent in Jung? And to what degree does it come out of the way people interact with Jung because of what they're looking for when they approach it? I think, I think though, I think it is in Jung precisely because of this question of cosmic balance. So that the idea that there's there's some like um there's an ability, you know. So the different, I guess it's like and thesis antithesis synthesis versus thesis antithesis syllogism. Like in, in Freud, for instance, like the the end point of 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 the cure is to realize that there's like I I <laughs> I won't go into the details because never mind. But um somebody I know had this real go on the first time we met about Freud and was like, Freud was a big patriarch and it's terrible doing psychoanalysis because you have some man that's sitting there telling you exactly what to do. And that's a problem. But he was very much into Jung and you're like, no, that's not how it works at all. You are confronted by a silent person. Um, and through the, and I think you, you mentioned this in Lettre Persan or whatever it's called, um, Montesquieu, the, um, that the, the other is better at recognize the, the, the other than themselves. So the way psychoanalysis operates is literally like, you don't know yourself. You speak the act of speech. The uh, the signs that that come from you say something that you don't know yourself, and the other person reflects back to you, and you come to know yourself. But you come to realize that that engagement, that transference of like believing that the other knows something in order to get something out of it, happens only insofar as you believe that the other know is a, is an all knowing other. 
And then you're gradually disabused of the fact and that you realize, that, oh, they don't know anything. Either. Um, but in Jung, it is very much like there's a sacred truth. So there's a sacred truth. There is, you know, there are these, these eternal patterns, there's eternal whatever, which from a Freudian perspective, you might say like, yeah, you know, there are trends. Humans are humans. We are all born and therefore we enter into language and, you know, based on a given epoch or whatever, there are various familial structures and these lead on to certain things. Language exists before us and language will exist after us. But it's not like there is an essence to it. And the psychotic, and I say this with, um, I don't have to put this, but let's say I identify with Nina. Um, and also, by the way, everybody does potentially have a psychotic core and you put somebody through enough, you know, they'll, you know, this, the psychosis is sort of, you know, there essentially. But um, I can't remember what I was going to say. But yeah, the, 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 the Jung, in his self-cure, which is sort of a, for, for Winnicott a failed self-cure, is, um, which it, interestingly, by the way, that does relate to the British psychoanalyst. So Winnicott beyond would believe that you can cure anybody of, psych, of psychosis and that basically um, you just speak to the rational part of the person and you leave the psychotic logic because in a way, psychosis is a logic to wither on the vine, quote unquote. So they believe that like, whereas a Lacanian would be like, you can't really psychoanalyze a psychotic in the same way because they can't do transference because they already don't believe that the other knows anything more than they do um, because they know everything. <laughs> um, so, so Winnicott would believe that, that Jung could um, get beyond psychosis by leaning into logic, which is a, a certain perspective. But from a Lacanian perspective, his self-cure um, would be to really lean into a pursuit of absolute truth. And he would call that paranoia. So the paranoia would be, the schizophrenic would be um, the person who experiences um, uh, uh, like a porousness to their egos. They might experience falling out of their sense of falling out or being out of body or these kinds of things. Um, a melancholic is somebody who's really confronted with the real, there's sort of a, a hole in the chain of signifiers and they can't, um, engage with their fantasy and so they just feel permanently depressed and then the paranoid which is almost like for Lacan like the healthiest psychotic is somebody who really like goes on a mega quest and it's like this is this is the solution to everything and they can actually like you know we talked about Alexander the Great you know people like that potentially they can get shit done you know but it is it is sort of like a rather than being a kind of elliptical or um, dialectic logic, it might be an absolutist logic, which at certain times can be useful sometimes. Um, but the point being is like, let's say if that Lacanian insight is correct, that that um, that Jung is psychotic and paranoid and therefore leans into absolutism. And his absolutism is that there is a possibility for cosmic balance. And it's interesting, like the Jordan Peterson Jungian thing is very interesting <laughs> related to this question um but yeah so i i think it is a dead end, dead end in that sense because as we've talked so many times that wholeness that pursuit of wholeness and completeness is completely what fuels capitalism completely what fuels any ideological whatever it create you know we, we are destined to create enemies because logically i don't know if we accept it or not contradiction um, i mean freud would say this, Marx would say this, you know, um, generates everything, you know, there is no wholeness and completeness, there is no utopia. And if we believe that there is, well, we're always going to have to either shoot ourselves in the foot or have enemies to sustain the fantasy. So it's just the same shit, basically. But maybe even more dangerous because it's like religiousized. Pretending to aren't, aren't there enemies? I mean, Marxism has a concept of the enemy in a way. It's a very um, divided image of, of things. But yeah, but I say it's, it's less like it's less, you know, the ad hominem enemy, the toxic enemy, more mm -hmm. the the structure results in, and we could maybe say that there is a right wing deviation and marks in the perspective. Yeah, I mean, and and in practice, you know, the Soviet Union just murdered loads of kulaks. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> because they were, they they owned land and stuff, and even if it was just small holdings, yeah. um, you know, they were absolutely the enemy. Um, and the arguments for destroying the kulaks were not uh, 
that those arguments did not begin in moralistic language. They began in the idea that the kulaks needed to be destroyed as a class rather yeah. than as people. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, you know, you're still murdered. You're still <laughs> murdered. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> right. Um, that's my, that's my point that you can, yeah. without having a conventional kind of, of moralistic account, yeah. you can still end up coming up with a justification for broadly the same. Right. Exactly. And then it manifests in a lot of people having moralistic attitudes to the kulaks. Yeah. Cause I think I get, go for it. No, I mean, it's just, I wanted to go back to the point about paranoia, which I think is very, very interesting. Right. And it's, it's an epistemological question as well. And, and you know, I, what I've read on the canon on this is very, very interesting. Right. So, so the paranoid position, you know, and having been very paranoid when I was in these states at moments, right. Like, I could see what was going on. It, it was it was basically precisely trying to fill in all the gaps. It was this idea that there is um, what needs to be explained is everything and there can't be any gaps. Right. So I was coming up with sort of really delusional theories. Right. And I knew partly that they were delusional. So I, I was had insight. I knew something was wrong. Right. I knew that they like my thoughts weren't quite right. And, you know, and partly they 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 I, I started to become very, very paranoid about people who'd gone to private school. Right. And this <laughs> tapped into. No, it's true. And, you know, it's just, this is a thing. It's like because at some point, you know, when I was younger or something, I must have developed a kind of, you know, feeling of total insecurity or lack in relation to the idea of, you know, people who, you know, and it's also about knowledge. This is the weird thing. It's like, oh, these are people who know more than I do because they've gone to these fancy schools and, you know, and and there's obviously some kind of deep seated resentment there or some kind of, you know, unfinished thought that I'd had that came back with this very strange paranoid vengeance, which was basically like, um, I thought that anyone who'd gone to private school knew what was going on in court and I didn't like, so that I was excluded from a certain kind of secret knowledge that other people (laughs) who'd gone to private school had. And it was absolutely mental. And I was, I remember trying to explain to my friend, Jenny, who'd happened to gone to a private school that what, this is what was going on. And I, I was like, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I think, you know, something that I don't know, you know, and and it's this very, very, very uncanny experience and and when she said things that were obviously rational because she's also a philosopher and on some level I was like yeah what I'm saying is completely irrational like I know it is you know and she's saying well do you you know do you really think that I know something that you don't about the trial or how courts work and and I was no no I don't I don't really think that you know you felt that I felt felt the feeling of being paranoid it's it's really uncanny because the thoughts you have feel much more powerful than normal thoughts, right? So like you're walking around, you're having, you know, little experiences, you're thinking, oh, that's, maybe you're thinking about an idea. But when you're very paranoid, like the way you're struck by thoughts is brutal. Like they, they always smack you. <laughs> and so you sort of think that they're more real or they're more true. And you're, and it's very hard to shake them off, especially when you're feeling mentally very fragile you like definitely have this thing of like <laughs> i know you, I, I know it sounds i know it's crazy and i know but but you don't <laughs> it's like you know it just yeah it's purchase, yeah and it's and it's so weird so you know from a philosoph- philosophical point of view i can sort of see what the epistemological desire of the paranoiac is and it is for all like you say it's like to fill in all the gaps it's like to have a theory of knowledge that explains what's going on which also includes not knowing because you're the one who doesn't know something and this is why you're paranoid because you're you're thinking that other people do it's like people are trying to steal knowledge or hide knowledge. But the thing is, <laughs> it's like, so this is the joke with the John Peason question, right? So, so what happened under great stress to him is interesting uh, over the last couple of years. And also potentially after a conf- confrontation with Zizek, who would be Freud looking Freudian looking basically. But anyway, but the but the um the thing is it's like you are as maybe the the psychotic maybe so so the in Freudian Lacanian, whatever. So so a perverse person, sort of a phrase that maybe sums it up is like one rule for thee, one rule for me. Uh, and and a, 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 a psychotic might be, you know, like, I know, I am it, I know, you know. And the thing is, it's like, so 
the contradiction of the universe is rendered into the contingent thing of like, oh, maybe I don't know, but there is an absolute truth. But I am the generator, so that the not knowing comes, you know, comes with me. But the but to you know this this point of the the things that are traumatic for somebody and not for somebody else, you know, this is absolutely true. And we we basically go through childhood. My niece and nephew here at the moment. I've got a two month old niece, and it's like the horror of being born. You go from these times of being like really really soothed to like fuck. You know? and we go from that to somehow having an ego, and the ego obviously is is this sort of like sense of self that that feels real and that like has some boundaries to it. But like, how do we go from that to that without having sort of ellipses, strange things, things like sexuality, which is this like psycho toddler language justification for you know <laughs> you know whatever um that drive is um these sort of buttons you know these quilting points to to quit Lacan, um that, that seal us in but that sometimes come with a massive downside like a traumatic experience something that really doesn't make sense and that we're we're um we're sort of caught in that moment because something that doesn't um that is beyond our understanding and beyond our possibility for meaning you know trauma is really something that that doesn't make sense that just doesn't we can't we can't fit into you know signifying chain or whatever and it's with us forever so and these this will happen to us growing up there will be things we will be treated unfairly by a teacher we will be humiliated by an adult you know and then in later life they become you know we get this great sense of affect when that like dynamic is touched upon um, but it could be anything, you know, it could be anything. So if we have an archetype of like the sensitive person, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, there's a whole sea of possibility. Just one uh, final comment. Oh, go on, Benjamin. I took oh, so much. <laughs> oh, I, I was just going to say, well, I, I suppose here would be my minimalist case for a possible use of young, right? I think the minimalist case is the teenager the 15, 16, 17-year-old who uh, heretofore has just kind of approached the, the world in a, uh, everything is about, is about me and I know what I'm doing and everybody else is, is stupid because everybody else doesn't do what I want or doesn't think the way I think uh, and, you know, fuck everybody else, right? Uh, I think a lot of People in their teenage years have a kind of period where it's kind of a them against the world thing, right? Even if they can't openly express that in front of their peers because they might get bullied. So in this kind of period, you might confront, say, you know, even something as simple as just the Myers-Briggs types. And that might make you realize that uh, there might be something that you're good at, but that that maybe comes at a cost in your personality, that the things that you're able to do well, uh, because you're able to do those things well, there are other things you tend to overlook or devalue, that other people are good at those other things, and that that means that those other people do have value, and that you can't just look at everybody else as stupid because they're not good at the specific thing that you've been overemphasizing your whole life. And I think especially when people get into those cognitive function stacks, where they go, okay, you're introverted thinking, and therefore you uh, tend to try to stay away from your extroverted feeling and you suck at extroverted feeling because you're good at introverted thinking. But that invites you to take whatever compliment you've been giving yourself your whole life and uh, give yourself just as large a critique in the other direction. And it invites you to appreciate the person around you who is excellent at extroverted feeling, but sucks at introverted thinking. Instead of just judging them for not being good at what you're good at, it invites you to see that they have a distinct value. And indeed, what they're good at is very hard for you. And I think that for a lot of, of teenagers, something like that is a valuable experience to open yourself up to the idea that society has value, that other people have value, and that life isn't all about you. If yeah, you I take it too far into mm. you know, mystical stuff and you believe it and you take it as a dogma, you know, that would be a different thing. But I don't think that's how most people encounter this. I think most people encounter it in early adulthood as a little bit of a perspective expander, and then they move on from it. 
Uh, but it's interesting that you you portray adolescence or this period as as almost kind of um, like weirdly confident and self-sufficient because I mean to, for me it'd be it's almost like the opposite like a kind of nihilism like a not knowing who you are at all and feeling depressed and at, or things are meaningless and but it might end up being a similar kind of argument which is to say and then maybe you encounter something that says no actually there are signs and symbols and people uh represent different things and and you know it becomes more like a, a kind of story and maybe it's about an enchantment actually because I think I mean you know certainly I, you know, I'd say my one of my overriding memories, and I, I, you know, I don't think I was particularly unusual or bad as a teenager in, in any of these ways. I didn't kind of rebel. I didn't fall out with my parents. You know, I was, you know, <laughs> getting getting drunk predictably and, and behaving badly in some ways. But I wasn't sort of, you know, out of control in any way. I wasn't sort of behaving pathologically. Um, but I definitely felt, you know, that I didn't know things that I didn't I didn't know. Um, I, I felt like world weary. I felt like quite quite nihilistic, actually, and I felt that other people knew again knew more of what was going on than I did, and and so yeah, I, it's 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 interesting that you put it almost like the opposite, like the kind of the self sufficiency, and then actually realizing that other people exist and have different skills and so on. It, I have but, to say, I would I'd identify a lot with your world weariness as a teenager, but in a way, <laughs> there is a similarity in that, like the the sort of more nihilistic sense maybe comes from an expectation that it should be different, you know, that it should mm-hmm. whatever, or that, you know, you should be recognized or told what to do, or, you know, told who you are, whatever. And then that it's sort of the acceptance that, yeah, know, that gets you. But I just wanted to have, I just had a thought about the Marx thing versus the Jung thing, which is that I, I do kind of think that like, so in Marx, it was more about the contradiction, the class contradiction rather than like, you know, murderous revenge or whatever um because again it's, it's about it's about the system but i think things that are utopian without acknowledging the end point of utopias are more damaging than things that actually openly admit let's say you know a conflict or contradiction or foreground contradiction because it is in the name of you know really what's it you, uh, you can get a good person to do anything with religion i don't know what the, this this statement is but like the belief in utopias will get people to do anything and this belief that it's all good can be really the most damaging thing without the understanding of that undercutting that will always happen. Interesting how we described teenage life very differently. I feel Mm. like we could get into that and that that could be a whole discussion. I I have every single one of my diaries, which I kept really religiously from the age of 11 to the age of 21. So I had 10 years, I, I've been rereading my 13 year old diary. It's uh, one thing I have to, to say, and, and I say this, you know, in, almost impersonally, it's astonishing how much sex is a feature or sexual feeling is a feature of young teenage life. It's really quite shocking. I was, I was surprised because I didn't think of myself like that particularly but it's very like prevalent, not in not in a kind of inchoate way. Like it's this sort of, um, you know, crushes on boys and things and this. But it, it's sort of relentless. And you're like, oh, God, you forget you, you, you know, I think forgotten what sort of puberty is like. And, yeah. you know, I was talking to someone the other day about single sex schools. And, you know, obviously there was all this recent kind of high drama around sexual harassment in schools. And like I have to say, like in a way that was going on, like we didn't it wasn't called that. But like co-ed school, mixed educational, you know, mixed sex schools, like are pretty yeah, bad. Yeah, to, like, to be on the side of me too for a second, which like I think is extremely <laughs> issues ridden. Obviously, it's interesting sometimes when you you accept something, and even though like I used to have felt like at my school you had to lobotomize yourself and allow yourself to be raped by old boys to fit in, which like it seems funny. Like at the time, it's like okay, <laughs> you look back and you're like. What the fuck? And a lot of people I know who are at this one particular school have, you know, we were sort of said, by the way, what the fuck? But it like, mm. it, you know, it is it not not great, let's be honest. But at the same time, what's the solution? Is it well, is yeah, that this is this issue. This issue doing something no. else. No, yeah. And and you know what what I wanted to say about that was like, you know, that actually the sexuality is is there obviously in both young men and young women and, and it's absolutely unavoidable. And, and so it's kind of, I don't know, we're getting off topic a little bit, but if, you know, one solution is just to have single sex schools. <laughs> like, you know, you never, it's, it's going to be a problem, I think. Like, and if you don't want, you know, young teenagers to have sexual interactions, then you, you have to keep them apart. 
like literally like, oh do you, can you discipline this out of people can you no I don't think so no you, you absolutely can't you absolutely can't but it's this again it's this utopian utopian sort of purity culture that you can have mm. puberty without sex or you can have yeah you, yeah which is just not going to happen if you if you have subjectivity you have you have sex and you have fantasy and you have all these things so yeah mm. you find another way out of it other than just denying it yeah and I, I don't know so to go back to the re, the re-enchantment thing or the enchanted world you know which I think Jung permits anyway or Jungianism kind of permits the, the meaningful world right and and I you know I agree it's a problem when when if that becomes a kind of fully rounded idea of things right and and I, I take your point always Helen about the cosmic harmony um but I wonder if there's a there is a way of having a kind of you know, a sort of split subject, a kind, you know, divided subject that nevertheless finds some meaning in some things, and that yeah. that something it's something like the archetypes in a way. Don't, I don't think they're reductive. I I think they it's like the tarot or something, and of course the tarot tarot is quite Jungian. You know, it's like if you if you read tarot cards or you think about the characters like the emperor or the high priestess, and you know, or like any of these sorts of ta- you know, you you might identify more with one type of person or what you know one image or maybe that maybe they're idealized images or maybe you get a card and you think oh that must refer to I don't know someone in your life because they somehow you know but it actually kind of accentuates or adds to a, a reading or a narrative or a story or a poetic vision rather than reducing somebody or something to to it so I mean again I get the point about Jung being psychotically you know potentially dogmatic and you know oh this means that and da 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 Right, which is a problem, and it it doesn't leave open, at least in the analytic situation. I think is also what you're saying. You know, like obviously in the uh, analysis, it, it can't be, it cannot be over coded to to by anything in a way, right? Because it is just the the speaking subject and the the analyst and the you know whatever comes up. But it it doesn't mean I think that there aren't serious kind of patterns and repetition you know because we also live in a culture that's the thing it's like there is a culture there is a culture also of myth and stories and even however broken or fragmented that is you know we might all have a image of, i don't know, red riding hood or you know i don't know particular ways of dealing with with fear like the fear of the forest or the of, of the dark or the moon and you know these things are real like there are real forests <laughs> there is a moon <laughs> Helen um, <laughs> mentioned, uh, Helen, you mentioned that you know the psychotic can't really do therapy because the psychotic is so sure that they know everything, that they can't put the therapist on a pedestal. And maybe if you're psychotic, then you can safely read Young because you won't put Young on a pedestal. You won't think that Young has access to something that you don't already know. And then you just take little bits and pieces of what he says and you uh, use them to redescribe your own thought. <laughs> I think the thing is like the the psychotic in terms of trends. There might there is a trend towards seeing something that isn't there. So, so you know esoteric stuff. So you know you can find a greater certainty in Jung sometimes because you're like this is exactly what I think. But I would say so. I I think tarot can be very useful for some people. In that it's sort of the, for me it's the least offensive <laughs> the kind of like woo woo stuff. And like you know I enjoy doing it with friends and stuff. The best Peter is so good at it because he's so convincing. He's so like. He gives a really good read on people. But anyway, but like the point being is that um, it can open up, up a lot of people who are who, let's say, the neurotic who, who questions and then represses the question. You know, it can it can be a tool to open up a question. You know, you can see something externally, almost as sort of like psychoanalytic slightly. It's not a person, but you might have some level of transference, read into it. It might tell you something about your life. But like doing this sort of prescriptively, like, what should I do? And I most people I know who turn to tarots when they're really desperate and it's like kind of like, well, maybe we should think about material conditions rather than, you know. Um, but also, like, I really like Terence Malick. <laughs> I really like him because I think that his vision of this sort of like the beauty of the world is not that there's like, you know, some beauty out there and it's mother nature taking care of us. It's like, the natural world's beauty is because of the horror of the world. Like you look at a sunset and you think of like the fiery horror that's like floating in space that's generating this beauty. I think the beauty comes out of precisely the the contradiction at the level of like, there's nothing else there, you know? Anyway. (laughs) What if you look at the sun and you're just like, 
this is amazing. But it is amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> Sometimes like there's this amazing beach near where I live and like the sky in this town has this like humidity to it and like the colours. Like you do not get light like you get here sometimes. Mm. And I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is the like the the pressure of the whatever and the, 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 all these kind of weird things that are like <laughs> material that's creating something that is just impossibly incredible. And if it was sort of just like there by God or just there, you know, you'd be like, who gives a fuck? That's not that's not impressive. If someone all powerful can like make something, who gives a fuck? You know, but it's like it really is just like the contingency and randomness that like I think you're a secret. I think you're a Gnostic, Helen. Do you know what? I'm actually giving a um, supervising <laughs> thesis. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Just, well, I think I think this is what, what you know. We need to pursue this in the future. <laughs> uh, this guy sought me out. I'm like, okay, whatever you say. Well, I think it'd be excellent. <laughs> That sounds like a topic that Nina will eventually pick for us. But in the meantime, we're at about an hour, so we got to wrap up for today. But we're going to go do a B-side for our Patreon listeners. We hope you'll join us over there. And in the meantime, have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.